You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Thanks, Lauren. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. All right. So one person's with me. Good morning, church. Good morning. All right. There we go. Um, you, you guys made a good choice when you decided to come to the 1045 service because the coffee machine did not show up to church at 9 a.m. And so we were in here this morning, first service, suffering without coffee, but we were suffering for Jesus. So, um, but coffee machine showed up for the 1045, and we're ready to go. Glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer. I have the privilege of leading us in vision and preaching. And we are in a sermon series, walking through verse by verse, the Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 has been called by many the greatest chapter in the Bible, and not because it's any more inspired than any other chapter in the Bible, but because it is just potent. It's just full of gospel truth about who we are, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, about who you are, what is ultimately true about you, about the world that we live in, and about the future that is coming for us in Christ. In other words, your circumstances are not the truest thing about you. Your feelings are not the truest thing about you. Your past is not the truest thing about you. Your successes and your victories are not the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you, if you are in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8, chapter, verse 1, that there is no more condemnation for you, that you're free, you're accepted, you're beloved, your sin has been paid for. That's what we saw week one. You've been set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life by the Son of God taking our place on the cross. We've been set free from sin and its penalty and its power in our life. And then last week, Josh walked us through verses 5 through 11, where we see this other fundamental truth about you if you're a Christian. Not only are you in Christ, is your life hidden in Christ, his righteousness clothes you you in every way, but his spirit is within you. So I've had to sum up the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8. I would say it this way. If your faith is in Jesus, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a mind-blowing reality. That's the truest thing about you. In fact, Paul seems to want to go on and talk more here about the Spirit. It's almost as if he knows that we're going to have trouble as we live our life as sinners in a fallen world, awaiting the return of Jesus. It's almost as if he knows that we're going to have trouble reconciling and coming to an, a full understanding of what it means to have the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. He's going to uh, talk in our text today more about the Spirit. In fact, Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit 20 times in the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8. 20 times he mentions the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is mentioned more in Romans 8 than in any other chapter of the Bible. This should tell us something, shouldn't it? We've got to get to know the Holy Spirit. We have to, as Christians, we have to understand exactly what it is that the Holy Spirit is working every day to produce in us, to do for us. Remember what Jesus called the Holy Spirit? Before he ascended to heaven, what do you call him? The helper. I'm going to send you the helper. 
The Spirit's been given to you to help you every single day. The Holy Spirit is operating within you, working within you every single day to help you. In fact, I want to just ask you to just consider that question for a minute. I mean, how well do you understand what it means for you to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you? Like, how often do you think about that? Do you understand the fullness and the power, the help that you have available to you in the Holy, in the Holy Spirit? I think most of, us, most of us probably don't. It kind of reminds me of when, when I was in high school. I remember my sophomore year of high school. And my freshman year, I took Algebra one. And then my sophomore year of high school, I guess our school got a grant or something like that. But all of a sudden, cases of these TI-89 calculators showed up. You guys remember this? If you were a 90s kid, you know what I'm talking about. How many of you had a TI-89 calculator? Okay. If you, didn't have a, if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you're, you're a bit younger. Um, imagine what chat GPT is to English class now. All right? You know, you got to write a paper, do a reflection, come up with a poem. You just go to chat GPT and it just kind of does it for you. And teacher never knows. The TI-89 calculator was like this, but it was for math. You didn't have to really know how to solve equations anymore. You just had to know how to put the equation in the calculator. But the difference was, is the teacher didn't care. Actually, math class became now about learning how to use a calculator. But yet still, there were people in my algebra class that failed algebra. And how do you fail algebra? You have a TI-89 calculator in your backpack. For many people, the Holy Spirit is, is like that TI-89 calculator in your backpack. The Holy Spirit is within you, yet we don't know how to listen to the Spirit, to receive the great help and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our everyday life. And so what Paul is doing in Romans 8 is he's trying to open our eyes to this. Not only do you, have you, is Jesus being given for you, but the Holy Spirit has been given to you. He's, uh, he's, he's filled us in so far on the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit is given to you to give you life. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. The Holy Spirit is given to you to give you life. In verse two, he calls the Spirit, the Spirit of life. In verse six, he says, the Spirit is life and peace. In verse 10, he says again, the Spirit is life. In verse 11, he says, the Spirit who is given to us gives life to our mortal bodies. In other words, he's talking about what the Spirit is doing is he's taking all of the, the, the incredible grace that Christ has accomplished for us, and the Spirit is trying to pull those things into our everyday life. And in our text today, Paul's going to show us how. He's going to give us two ways that the Spirit is working in your life every day to give you life. Every day, the Spirit is doing two things. First, he's going to help us see that the Spirit is there working to help you put to death sin. And second, the Spirit is there to help you put on your sonship. To put on your sonship. Let me pray for us and we'll work our way back through the text. God, what a grace it is to gather with your church, to sing your praises, to open your word, and to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you for the grace of the gathered church. Lord, our prayer is simple this morning. As we open your word, we say to you, God, we want you here this morning. We want to hear from you this morning. I pray that by your spirit, you would speak to each person, that you would encourage us, you would convict us, you would build us up, that we might live in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Look back at verse 12. He says, the first thing that the Spirit does is help us put to death our sin so that we might live. 
Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The so then in verse 12 is a transition sentence, a transition statement. Paul is saying, in light of the Son given for you and in light of the Spirit given to you, you are no longer indebted to sin. The word there means uh, under obligation or bound to sin. You, You no longer are under obligation to live that old life of sin and death. You know, there are a lot of people in our world today that are enslaved to sin, like they're struggling, they're trying to find freedom, and they're looking to all of the things in the created world to give them life and identity and purpose. They're bound up in sin. But Paul says, you've been set free, you've been unbound, you're no longer obligated to that. You know that life is found in Christ. You've been set free, you are free. Now, what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that you won't still struggle with sin. You certainly will. But what it means is that God has done something in you that has changed the trajectory of your life. If you are in Christ by faith, if you've placed your faith, if you've crowned Jesus as your Lord and you've claimed Jesus as your Savior, that the trajectory of your life has been pointed in a new direction, away from that old way of life in the world and pointed in the trajectory of Jesus and obedience to Jesus. You said, I, and, and, I'm, and to the best of my ability, I'm going with Jesus. I'm walking with Jesus. I'm living my life in obedience to Christ. And I want to ask you, can you say that this morning? Have you said that? Christ is my all in all. And the thing that's key here is that what Paul is saying is that God has given you help. He's given you the Holy Spirit to help you put away those old patterns, give up on life in this world that doesn't satisfy so that we can obey Jesus and experience more of the abundant life that that he gives. In other words, he says, the Holy Spirit is given to you every day. You get out of bed every day. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit is doing is helping you kill your sin. That's the language of the text. Look back at verse 13. He says, put to death. Put to death. That's the It literally means... It literally means kill and bury your sin. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to help you do. And let me give you an image that might help. Um, what he's saying here is that we should treat the sin in our life like I treat a snake in my yard. Okay? I know there are some people that are like, hey, snakes are good for the ecosystem. You know, like, leave them alone. Not, not me. The snakes are not good for my ecosystem ever. There's a snake in my yard, and I see the snake, and I kill the snake, and I toss it over the fence into the woods. Like, that's how it works in my backyard, okay? Snakes are a threat. Snakes are not good. I don't want to get close enough to a snake to even figure out if it's good for the ecosystem. I don't, I'm not risking it. See the snake, kill the snake, bury the snake. Toss it over the fence. And Paul, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, treat your sin the same exact way, Christian. You shouldn't play around with sin. Sin is serious. Sin leads to death. Your sin put Jesus on the cross. Sin grieves God's heart. Sin ruins our lives, robs our joy, shrinks our soul. Your sin wounds those who you love. Why would you cozy up with it? You've been set free from sin. You've been given the spirit. And the Spirit is within you, helping you put your sin to death so that you might live. 
As the Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the point that Paul is making. But I bet if we're all honest in our heart of hearts, that there are far too many of us who are casual about our sin. We think about our greed, our materialism. We think about the lustful thoughts and actions that we have. We think about our anger, and we think those things aren't really that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. We're, we're casual with sin. In fact, I bet there are some of us who there are things that we do or things that we look at or places that we go. If other people knew about those things, those things that God sees, if other people knew about them, we would be, we would be ashamed but we've numbed our conscience. We've ignored the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. And we're still living in those old patterns, those same patterns that Christ has set us free from so that we can, we can live. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying the Holy Spirit has been given to you to help you kill your sin and become more like Jesus. But hear me, the Holy Spirit cannot do his work without your participation. I want to say that again. The Holy Spirit who God has put in you as a gift of grace, working to help free you from that old way and help you live in that new way, the abundant life of Christ. He can't do his work without your participation. This is, uh, this is what we talk about in, in the doctrine of sanctification. Your, your sanctification, your becoming more like Christ is a cooperative work between you and the Holy Spirit. Your justification you, didn't, you don't do anything about that. You just show up needy, and, and the Spirit opens your eyes to see Jesus is beautiful, and you're saved. But our sanctification requires our participation with the Spirit, our cooperation with the Spirit. Let me, let me give you some examples that I think might help you understand what I mean. There are three simple ways in which the Spirit works in your life every single day. These ordinary operations of the Spirit. Every single day, you get up out of bed. If you have the Holy Spirit, He's there and He's working. Uh, one of the things that He's doing, He's prompting you toward obedience every single day. The Holy Spirit within you is there to speak to you, to prompt you toward obedience to Christ. Second thing He's doing, He's there to remind you of the truth, reminding you of the truth of God's word as we live in a world full of lies. The Spirit is there, ready, willing, speaking the truth to you. Third thing he's doing, he's there to convict us when we sin, reminding us that God's kindness leads us to repentance and his mercy and his grace restores us. The Holy Spirit is there every day doing these three things, but it requires our participation, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit could work in your lives and prompt you toward obedience to give or to serve or to speak that word of encouragement. The Holy Spirit, men, can say to us, get up off the couch and serve your family and do the dishes, help with the kids, the Holy Spirit could say to you, share the gospel with the coworker. The Holy Spirit is there doing his job. But what does it require us to do? To walk in obedience, to hear him and then obey him, right? We have to participate with the Spirit. The Spirit is there to speak truth to us in a world of lies, in a world of temptation. But what do we have to do? We have to hear the truth and receive the truth and resist temptation. James 4, 7 says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It requires our participation. The Spirit is there to convict us of sin in our life. He's done this in my life recently, even in the last week or so. Um, the Spirit is convicting me of, uh, of having a critical spirit about me in the last few weeks, just like seeing the problems 
and being quick to point out the negative. By the way, did you know that your sin is like sticky notes on your back? You guys remember middle school? And it, you, you know, sticky note would be on your back and, and everybody else would see it except for who? You. <laughs> you know, people are laughing. You're like, wait, what's, what, what's going on? Oh, there's something sticky. Our sin is like sticky notes on our back. We see everybody else's sins. We see the problems in the world, but oftentimes we're the last people to see our own sin, except for what? The Holy Spirit and his kindness and his love for us opens our eyes to see our sin. And so the Holy Spirit's been doing that for me this week. This critical spirit about me, that's not who I want to be. That's not the life that Christ has purchased for me. But what do I still have to do when I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit? I have to confess my sin and I have to repent, right? It requires our participation with the Holy Spirit if we're going to kill our sin. Do you see this? Redeemer, the Holy Spirit is within you, working in you to help you put to death sin so that you might live a more abundant life in Christ. He wants you to be free. He's committed to making you more like Christ. This is God's promise, but it requires that we learn to listen for his voice. Um, the Holy Spirit is gentle. Did you know this? The Holy Spirit is gentle. The word in the Bible, in the Greek, that gets translated to spirit is the word pneuma, which means wind. Like the wind, you can't see it, you can't grab it, but you know it's there. You feel it gently when you're paying attention. Now, sometimes a group of believers come together like this, and the wind can roar. But in the every day of your life, when you wake up in the morning and pour that cup of coffee and start your day, the Spirit is with you, gently leading you, nudging you, speaking to you, prompting you, convicting you in his kindness. And it requires that we learn to listen to the Spirit, trust his voice. And as we do, the promise of the text is that day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, he will make us more and more like Jesus. This is how sanctification works. What a gift we have in the Holy Spirit. But Paul says there's more. There's more to what the Holy Spirit is working to do within you every day. He not only wants to help you see your sin and put it to death because he loves you, but he wants to work to help you see yourself as God sees you. So he's working to help us see our sin as it really is, and he's working to help us see ourselves as God sees us, as we truly are in Christ. Look at verse 14, 14 and 15. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul is telling us that the Spirit within you every single day and his gentle voice is there to remind you of who it is that you truly are. A son of God. Beloved child of God. And you might be thinking, well, why doesn't he say daughters? Why doesn't he say sons and daughters? And we'll get to that in a minute. Um, there's actually something pretty profound about him saying sons, especially knowing that Paul was writing to a church that was made up of men and women. Phoebe delivered this letter to the church in Rome. It was made up of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free. And he's saying all of you, no matter what your background is or what your earthly status is, are sons, beloved sons of God, invited into an intimate relationship with the Father. 
God not only saved you, but he so values you. There is dignity that he bestows upon you. Oh, if we could learn to see ourselves the way that God sees us. What would it change about your Tuesday afternoon if you could see yourself the way that God sees you in Christ? The dignity that he bestows upon you. The duty that he has invited you into. The honor. You see, to understand this, we need to know something about adoption in first century Roman culture. When Paul uses the word adoption here, he's using adoption as it was understood and what it meant in first century Roman culture. There are two things that I want to point out. One is that in Greco-Roman culture, a family could disown their biological children at any moment. Like this was normal. This was a norm at any moment. Um, kids, you spill the dinner, or you spilled milk at dinner, disowned. I almost disowned one of my children this week. I almost disowned Peyton. He told me that he no longer wants to be a Dallas Cowboy fan this week, and I almost disowned him. And then I thought maybe I should listen to him. Um, maybe the spirit was nudging me uh, to, uh, to a better life if I would listen to him. You could disown your children at any moment, and it was common. You bring shame and disgrace upon your family, honor, shame culture, first century world, disowned. And so there were a lot of orphans in Greco-Roman culture. The second thing that we need to understand is that adoption in the first century is not really the way that we think about adoption today. By God's grace, Christians have really changed the world. We've changed the way we view adoption today. The way we view adoption is, you know, there's a, a, someone less fortunate in need, and so we're going to adopt them and bring them into our family. Christians have led the way in that for centuries now. But in the first century, that's not the way adoption was viewed. It was the opposite. It was the powerful, and it was the wealthy. It was those with great fortune that would adopt someone into their family, usually because either they didn't have an heir or their heir had been disowned. And so they find someone that's prominent, that is um, intellectual, that is maybe good-looking and strong, and I'm now going to adopt them into my family and make them my heir. Case in point, Julius Caesar. He, adop he adopted Octavian, who we know has changed his name to Augustus, Caesar Augustus. He gives him his, the empire. He inherits the empire. In fact, the next four emperors of Rome of the Roman Empire, were all adopted. They were all adopted. Claudius, Tiberius, Nero, all adopted. Think about what Paul is saying here. Look back at verse 15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoptions, adoption as sons. Brothers, sisters, Hear what God is saying to you. Get a look for a second at how God sees you. He chose you. He gives value and dignity to you. He has called you his beloved. He pursued you at great cost to himself. He so values you and so loves you that he gives you his name. He cannot and he will not disown you. Despite you, you've been adopted by the Father of all glorious grace. And the text goes on and says, not only has he adopted you, but he's made you his 
heir. He's chosen you to represent him, to carry forth his kingdom. He's put dignity and purpose upon you, where you live and where you work and where you learn and where you play. The places that you interact every single day, you're there to represent him and his name and his legacy and to carry forward his grace. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is given to you to help you get out of bed every morning and see yourself this way. To look yourself in the mirror and not have your mind full of all of that negative self-talk about yourself. The inadequacies. The ways that you don't measure up. The guilt and the shame. No, that's the voice of the enemy. The Holy Spirit, verse 16 says, is given to you to help you see yourself as God sees you. Look at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness, testifies, speaks with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We'll deal with the second part of verse 17 next week. I want to ask you to consider for a second, what would it change for you if you could get this down deep into your soul? What would it change if you could begin to see yourself the way that God sees you in Christ? A recent study tells us that 77% of Christians, 77% of Christians believes that God has a negative view of them. That's staggering. 77% of Christians believe that when God thinks about them, when God thinks about me, that he's either critical or he's distant or he's disappointed. 77%. But that's not what the text is telling us. That's not what the Spirit is telling us if we listen. You see, the Spirit is testifying to us about God's love for you, about God's delight in you. Oh, how we must learn to hear and listen and tune our ear to the voice of the Holy Spirit, what it would change for us each day. I want to close with a story that I hope will pull these two ideas together. I think it will. This idea that the Spirit is within you every single day, gently speaking and leading and guiding you to put to death your sin. He's there to help you. And this idea that the Spirit is there every single day, gently speaking and reminding you and encouraging you and lifting you up to put on your belovedness and live in light of your belovedness. Uh, my, my, my oldest nephew, he's 13 now, but, um, but he spent the first part of his life as an orphan in Russia. Um, I think we have an image of of him, yeah. This, so this is my brother, and this is my nephew. This is the first time that my brother met my nephew, and I love this picture because pictures tell a story, and I love the delight in the face of the father in this picture. You see the delight. Little did my nephew know that well before he was even born, that his father was working to secure a home for him, to secure an identity for him to secure a life for him, an abundant life for him. He had no idea. My brother and his wife, when they first got married, felt that God was leading them, the Spirit was prompting them to adopt. And the Spirit had said specifically to him, because this is what the Spirit does, speaks to us, uh, said to them that they needed to adopt before they had biological children, that if, if they you know, waited until later, they might never do it. And so they, they spent the first three years of their marriage working toward adopting my nephew. And it was incredibly costly to them. Um, it cost them $40,000 uh, to adopt my nephew. It required them to make multiple trips to Russia 
for court hearings, which meant time off work and lots of travel. Those court hearings were brutal, by the way. They were, um, there were lots of, 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 of charges against them and uh, questioning their motives for adoption, and they were heartbreaking. It, it required them to have multiple home studies with dozens of different agencies in order to adopt him. It was quite costly. And why did they do this? Did they do this because this boy was lovely? No. Did they do this because he was worthy? No. He was the son of a prostitute, dropped off at an orphanage. This is who he was. But to the father, to his father, he was lovely. To his father, he was worth it. He was so worth it. Soon, this boy would get a sense of how much his father loved him. There was a court date, a final payment that was made. The boy was legally adopted. He was no more an orphan. He was now a beloved son. They boarded a plane with him. Can you just imagine this? Your new parents and you board a plane for like a you know, 10-hour flight with a toddler. <laughs> Can you imagine this? Oh, man. Uh, and so they board a plane with him, and he starts to get a sense of his new life. He starts to get a sense of how loved he is, how beloved he is. In the weeks and months ahead, he gets more and more of a sense of it. He enjoys his new home. He begins to learn a new routine. He meets his new family. He's delighted. But still, those formative years of his life were spent where? In an orphanage. And so although he's now adopted and he knows that he's loved, he's still for weeks and even months and even years into his new life with his new family as a new son, he still struggles with orphan-like behavior, orphan-like habits. He was used to not getting enough food, and so he would hoard food. He was used to not getting enough love, and so he would fight for attention. He would perform for attention from the few caretakers that were in the orphanage. He was used to crying and nobody coming. And so he learned to self-soothe. And so for those first few weeks and months he was home, he'd never cried. He hoarded food. He still lived like an orphan. Do you see the parallels? Are you with me? How many of us still live like orphans? We we think that we don't have enough, that God won't meet our needs, and so we hoard what we have. We self-soothe rather than crying out to God in our times of need. How many of us still live like orphans? We perform and compete for attention and accolades so that other people will tell us that we're lovely or enough. You see, those orphan ways of living didn't just go away overnight for my nephew, but over time, with the committed love of his father, he slowly but surely started to leave those orphan behaviors behind. He slowly but surely learned how to live a free and abundant life as a son. You look at him now, and you would never know he's an orphan. He knows what it means to be his father's son. In fact, he even looks like his father. It's crazy. And so it is with us, brothers and sisters. What would it change for you if you got up out of bed every morning convinced that the Holy Spirit is within you because he is. And you tuned your ear to the Spirit's voice and you trusted him and you listened to the Spirit, helping you put off your sin and put on your belovedness. What would it change for you? 
Paul says in verse 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery. You didn't receive an orphan spirit to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Let's pray. What a glorious truth, Father. We thank you that you have so loved us that though we were unworthy, you saw fit to call us your children, to call us out and to call us in, to call us out of sin and death, out of darkness and into light, out of lies and into truth, out of death and into abundant life. We thank you for your great grace, and we pray simply this morning that you would teach us as a people to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that we would hear the Spirit leading us away from sin and into life, that we would hear the Spirit leading us out of lies and condemnation into truth about how you see us and how you love us. Help us to be a people, a church here in this community, in this city, that knows the depths and the height and the breadth and the width of your love for us in Christ Jesus and that we extend that love to those around us so that more may see and more may know. We thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at redeemerrr.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store. 